0: Hey, everybody, we want to welcome you to another episode. Uh, Today's topic is uh, one that I think is close to everyone at Platform One's heart, um, but is really what I would consider to be the differentiator uh, between P1 and the other places that I've worked in the past. Uh, And it's this concept of culture, right? And culture being king and paramount uh, to success in an organization. Uh, So we've got a couple of guests who I will let introduce themselves here in a second. Uh, Andrew Green, who's kind of one of our our OGs, as we like to call them, and uh, Stephen Olick, who recently joined the team. So we should get two pretty good perspectives of what it was like in the early days, what it's like now, uh, as well as philosophies from from them uh, coming from uh, diverse backgrounds. So Andrew, over to you first to introduce yourself, and then we'll let Stephen do the same.
1: Hello. Thanks for having me on. Andrew Green. As Drew mentioned, I'm one of the OGs, been around since before Platform One was called Platform One it's been a fun exciting crazy journey uh during the time that i've been here i've worn a whole bunch of different hats but at the end of the day i'm an engineer at heart that likes to build solutions um for end users um and that's that's about it and about me yeah and
2: my name's is steven like uh so yeah i'm new to p1 i've been in the dod space department of defense for about 17 years so you know i'm i'm typically not the type that would you know Jump into the deep end with the culture here at platform one but this is what i've been looking for my entire career in life and uh probably the the lifeline that kept me in the government for at least the next few years so um you know i've been kind of all over the world literally just came back from europe now living back in america so now i'm getting used to the p1 culture and even the american culture to a certain extent so uh looking forward to the conversation today it's gonna be fun
3: uh, thanks, guys, for the intro. Um, I'm going to start with a very vague question. I'm actually going to turn to a two-part one. I think, you know, all over our kind of little ecosystem we've created in this kind of DoD software movement, there's a lot of buzzwords that mean a, a bunch of different things, even though it's the same word, right? It's very overloaded. Um, so first, maybe tell me what what you define as culture, not P1's culture, but like what what is culture to you? Um, and then tell me as a follow-up to that, what what do you think P1's culture is? How would you define it?
2: Yeah, I'll start if that's okay, Andrew. Um, so, culture are like the norms. It's the things that people just inherently hold true amongst themselves, amongst a community of people of humans. Um, that's how I've seen it throughout my life, at least. You know, in different parts of the country, uh, they just hold things more sacred, let's just say, than than others. Especially if you live in different parts of America, uh, the world, you work at different organizations. It's uh, To use another kind of like cliche phrase, it's that special sauce or that secret sauce that runs an organization that you just can't define on paper. You can do your best to try and write it down and and coach people up on what it is. But unless you're willing to like just be a part of it and inculcate and kind of like do what the board do and in Star Trek and like assimilate to it, you're never really gonna get it. And um, that takes humility. It takes like taking a step back and like, really just adapting yourself to the norms versus kind of forcing yourself on the team. Um, what do you think about that, Andrew?
1: Yeah, I agree. That's, when I was thinking about this, it's it's really just by the people. Culture is by the people. It's, it's how they interact, um, how certain people step into roles, how some people, like the different personality and characteristics, like there's leaders, there's followers, right? And there's Worker bees, I'm sure there's good words for all of these things, but it's how all those people exist together as a community building towards some purpose.
2: Yeah. So I think, Austin, you asked about like P1's culture. So let's be real about what it is and what it was, maybe, and uh, what it could be. So, me coming in six months into P1, I see P1 as being this unicorn organization inside this behemoth called the Department of Defense. and when I say that, I'm talking about there is no rank. There are no, you know, I'm part of this company or I'm a civilian or I'm an airman wearing a uniform every day. Uh, there's no like predefined, you know, job titles, if you will. I mean, one of the funny things are that everybody gets to create their own title and kind of create their own value back to the team. Um, that That's from what I've observed just in my short amount of time is just, hyper-focused on delivering value outside of chains of command, outside of the silos that a typical, you know, let's say Air Force, Army, Navy organization typically is, where it's personnel and logistics and HR, well, I said HR, but like operations and your IT organization kind of working in all those different ways. There's true integration. And then we also talk about dad jokes three times a week. So that's always fun. I, I... laugh because I'm a dad myself and I need to take that material back and try it on my own kids so those are just like some initial impressions what what about you Andrew?
1: Yeah I appreciate that you brought up the titles because um, P1's culture around titles aren't a thing has totally ruined me like I can't (laughs) even describe my title anymore like I fill out an application for for something and it's like what's your job it's like oh, I have to think about this again. What, what is it again? Like, I do work. So, so I appreciate that. And again, it goes back to by the people. It's an evolution over time, right? When, when Platform One first began, um, it was centered around some experience of a few particular people. Um, and it was centered on that idea of, we are here as a single team to solve problems, right? Um, in a lot of places in the DOD, there's the government team and there's the contractor team, right? And, and we wanted to completely erase those lines, not even just blur them. Um, and so never have we ever worn badges or really cared about titles, right? It's it's all about merit and it's all about how the people interact together and what we're trying to work towards and how we're going to get there. And it ties into the concept of seniority or experience and whatnot, is less significant like obviously it still matters but it's less significant because you you are it's merit-based right like you come in and you integrate yourself with the culture like you said assimilate um and you learn like your best place to fit in that team to solve a problem because as a
3: team we succeed and we fail uh, the one thing i wanted to add to that before drew asked the next question is you know this badgeless thing i'm glad you both brought up and titles Uh, Just a quick fun story is when when Platform One moved into our official building here in San Antonio, uh, kind of post-COVID apocalypse, um, they printed badges for us because we became our own own, uh, unit. And obviously, you have to wear your badge because it's a secure facility, whatever, right? It makes sense. But they printed my badge first and they handed it to me and it was a different color because I was government and it had my rank on it. And I literally gave it right back to them and said, nobody gets different colored badges and please don't put anything but names on these. It's not just a saying, right? Like I literally had the contractor team that runs our facility reprint all of our badges, which they were not happy about. uh, But I really meant it. Like I don't want to, I don't want to stand out in a crowd, right? There's no difference in, in people that are working towards the same goal.
2: Well, I mean, before I I think you're hitting on something incredibly important that I don't want to lose on this conversation to the audience. So we're defining the culture, but also part of the culture at P1 is like ensuring that we're all accountable to it and living it every single day because of how fragile culture can be and how much it can be eroded. If you don't have those champions literally doing what you did. Awesome. Like, I can't believe that that was a thing that, you know, they printed those badges, even after being told potentially not to do that. And you had the gumption in the moment to like, like it just didn't feel right, which I think is another part of that culture. Like it's inside of you. It's this other than saying it's who you are and you're being like it, you had that moment where you had to give it back because you felt wrong. Like it, it, it disturbed the force, if you will, not to use another (laughs) Star Wars kind of thing, but um, good on you for doing it because Those little acts like add up over time and then the culture completely changes from really what it was intended to be.
3: Yeah. And honestly, it just shows how strong our culture was because when I got handed it to me, right, it was a natural reaction for me to be like, no, this is not, this is obviously not what we do here. So please redo it. (laughs) So it was a very natural thing, but it's because the culture was so strong.
0: Yeah. And one of the really cool things I think is there's this huge, there's a huge power to identity, right? But one of the great things about platform one is a lot of people identify as platform one employees first and then whatever contracting company they work for, the government or active duty, whatever they may be second, which maybe makes it feel a little cultish. uh, But I think it's the power of belief, right, where I am the value I deliver to end users, war fighters, et cetera, uh, or I am my piece of that, my role in that specifically, as opposed to I am rank name uh, that works on X functionality kind of thing.
2: But you're right, Drew, the word cult is in culture. Like We are (laughs) cultish,
0: and we should own that. Fair enough. (laughs) I know it maybe has a
2: bad connotation from
0: other cults that have taken it
2: way too far for whatever purpose they had. But
0: All right, so I'm going to pull us back a little bit uh, into this whose line is it anyway style of us making up titles. Uh, Because when we were about 15, maybe 20 people, we encouraged everyone to have a chief of something title, uh, to which, like Andrew, I had to think about a lot. Like, oh, boy, I get to make up my own title. I chose chief people officer as my made up title. Um, And and basically what I'm going to postulate is to me within culture, the most important things are relationships, right? The stronger my relationship with you as an individual, uh, the more likely I am to give you the benefit of the doubt. If you go off on me in a meeting or something, uh, the more likely I am to want to slug those late hours with you uh, to deliver our value, et cetera. Um, So relationships trump everything in my mind. Uh, Andrew and Stephen, we'll go Andrew first. From a most powerful piece of culture, would you agree with that, or do you have something else that you think drives the day, wins the day?
1: No, I absolutely unequivocally agree. It's it's all about the people. I have nothing more to add because I I, I do think <laughs> it's it's that simple, right? It's it's literally that's it, right? It's it's the people, right? And. It's super important to understand that Platform One did not start as a funded organization. And so how did it start? Literally, it started by relationships, 100,000%. Right. Not only the relationships of the people who came to work on the team, if you will, but all the also the relationships for who we interacted with and the end users that we interacted with and the different missions that we were supporting at the time, which is built and changed over time. Um, And every single one of those relationships is a unique story in and of itself.
2: Yeah. So your mic drop moment was spot on i mean if it is that simple then why doesn't everybody do it that's like my first reaction to what you said i mean people first humans um the only way anything ever gets done not even at work but in life i mean think about your family that you have and other friends and acquaintances that you have um you're not successful unless you lean on others and if you're on your own on an island trying to get through this thing called life like you're you're, you're failing and um it's hard to it's hard to reset that mindset because, you know, there's pride, prideful people in the world and, you know, they want to think like they can achieve on their own, but it just never happens and occurs. And what's cool about P1 is it is that way. And so my perspective being relatively new, um, you know, on the shoulders of some of these OGs that I'm talking to right now, like not only internally to P1, but when I talk to the customers that we serve, those folks that have, you know, taken some risk experimented with p1 since we're so new to even what the dod is trying to do with software and gave us money which is like the ultimate form of flattery in the government um like the first things they always say are like we're with you guys like we want to experiment we want to test we want to take the risk we're okay if you guys fail because we want to fail with you because of how how monumental p1 is going to be ultimately to you know how software is you know, basically delivered to the DOD. Something else I'll add is just because P1 culturally is virtual, you know, relationships are even more important. And something that has been really interesting for me to understand is how to operate in a truly virtual environment, because I've never, in my 17 years working, have never been in that environment before, but it's it's so commonplace for everybody here at P1 So I've had to take a lot of my biases that I had, and I'll be honest, like I just was not ready for the culture shock of coming in and jumping in on a Zoom call Monday, Wednesday, Fridays, which is what we do, and have these hilarious things called daily stand-ups where we're, you know, trying to talk about work, people are trolling in chats, we do dad (laughs) jokes and other things, and like right now I'm drinking an adult beverage talking on a computer, which happens to be an Apple computer doing DoD work, like, like, This is crazy to me, I'm I'm in in an alternate reality, but it's the reality that we have and what I personally want. So unless we're really cultivating those relationships, specifically virtual, like nothing's ever gonna get done because every time we jump on Zoom, we're only talking about work half the time and we gotta be able to put it to the side and get to know each other on that personal level.
3: Yeah, and uh, I think it's a great transition to the question I wanna ask next. And it's fun that I get to ask this because I actually learned this from Drew, who's co-hosting this podcast with me. It, I've like, I'm going to steal it forever because I think it's just so telling of people's individual leadership philosophy and kind of who they are. Uh, and it's a very simple question, right? So I'm going to ask it to both of you and just uh, excited to hear your answers. We'll start with uh, with Stephen this time. Um, the question is, who do you feel in your position at P1, right? Regardless of your duty title or what your job is, government or contractor, um, who who are you accountable to? So at P1...
2: I am accountable to every single person inside of my specific value stream first and foremost. Um, so the way we're organized at P1, we have these things called value streams, which at the end of the day are the value producing product, service, whatever that we you know radiate market to the field and to the world. Um, and me in my position, I'm not successful unless the other 60, 70 folks on my team feel empowered they're valued they're trusted they're motivated to get after the work and then ultimately i'm removing whatever impediments personally professionally emotionally like it's not just about banging away on a keyboard code and doing code commits and merge requests and stuff i mean i had folks like come to me which is really flattering and really is something that is my leadership philosophy of like empathy like they had like a family emergency happen or they had just a really like crappy day that they just wanted to like talk to someone about which had nothing to do with party bus as a thing or with p1 so we had those moments and i talked them off the ledge so to speak or we had that moment of like hey you're not alone cuz i'm dealing with the same thing i've got a 6 year old and a 1 year old that's like driving me nuts and let's have that chat right so th- back to your point like who am i accountable to well everybody on the team there's not one more important person than the other um now, outside of that, because we're all P1, and there's others within party uh, within platform one as well. You know, I have peers and counterparts, but my team is the most important thing, and
1: that's who I feel I'm accountable to. Thank you for totally throwing me off, because Austin of asked a question, and, and I'm thinking about it in the back of my head, and then I listen to your answer, and I get like eighteen thousand other things in my head. So. <laughs> This is quite difficult, and I will say I very much appreciate the wording of this question, who are you accountable to, not for, Um, because it it ties directly back to that culture thing, right, like we exist together, we don't exist in a hierarchy um, to command and and whatever you want in that manner. Um, Who am I accountable to? Um, Originally, the first thing that I think about is I'm accountable to the end users, their mission, the warfighter, however you want to phrase that, because um, in a fun culture that's very, very different than the rest of the DoD or anything that I've ever worked particularly, um, it's it's a very different environment. It's a lot more fun and whimsical, um, but that doesn't mean that the mission that we're supporting is any less significant or important, right? Like we work on missions that are to the national security right and life and death right um so so I, I still do think that that's still my like number one accountable to um group of people and that's the end users of the missions and, and their missions um secondly i think it's the people that that i'm with the people that are working towards supporting those end users and whatnot right um, I personally get a lot of um, satisfaction in my life and in my work in helping others succeed, and I think that's part of the reason I've worn a lot of different hats over the years because I, I don't, you know, I don't, I don't have a need or a desire to necessarily lead, um, but to solve problems and help other people succeed. Like I've, I've had days where, you know, I answer a bunch of questions that matter most or calls or whatever it may be, and it just completely drains me, um, but but it's still good. And I always think like, if I can help unblock somebody with five minutes of my time, it's worth it. Right. Even if that means that I have 25, five minute conversations in a row and then all of a sudden the day's over um, and I didn't get the thing done that I particularly wanted to get done. So, so anyways, there's that piece. And then that I'd be remiss for not mentioning as like a bonus accountable to is quite honestly, as a contractor, who's you know, (laughs) working in a job that is ultimately paid for by the taxpayer and there's significant reasons and whatnot. um, But I I do also feel accountable to that, like the fiscal responsibility of the nation in in some regards, right? And in every job I've ever worked in the DOD, I've seen waste and it gets under my skin. Um, And so everywhere I go, just me personally, like I'm, I'm very accountable to that. Like I want to be more effective and more efficient um, even if it's in some small way, because you know the defense budget is massive um, and any part that I've ever enacted with is a very small piece of it. So that's my bonus accountable
0: to what I love about your guys's answers is the way you answer that question is not who you're actually accountable to on paper, right? So like <laughs> Stephen has a Raider, somebody who gives him an annual performance report. Andrew and I as contractors have basically a contract in terms of agreement that we're accountable to. Theoretically, we could focus all of our time on those things because that's where we're actually measured, but the intrinsic motivation to be there for the users, to save taxpayers money, to be part of the team and help people work is like the underlying success factor of platform one's culture, right? It turns out nobody on party bus gets to tell anybody how great Steven is, right? And 73 people across the team, none of them rate on him uh, or are aligned to any of his incentives. Uh, neither do the end users for Andrew, other than us going out and saying, hey, our net promoter score is important to us as an outcome metric. Um, so it's a bunch of things we've layered on ourselves. Uh, and I think that's just true across the board at Platform One as we all share that kind of mindset of, even though I'm not on paper accountable to you, I as a human need to be accountable to you because we're in this fight together. And then uh, this next question is one oh, a huge thank you to my mother for. Um, so... Around the time I went off to college, she bought me this little trinket that hangs on your wall. It's an Albert Einstein quote, and it says, try not to be a man of success so much as a man of value. And to be honest, when I first read it, it, it meant nothing to me. I was like, I don't understand those two things are the same. Uh, but as I've grown, I started, I've started i started to delineate between the two. What would you guys say the difference is between success and value? And, and how does that quote even make sense?
2: In the government. So I'll come with that lens first. Um there's usually in everybody's cubicle that I've ever seen, and I'm a victim of this as well. So I'm not perfect. Everybody has their I love me wall. And it's usually like every certificate in class they've ever accomplished, you know, some kind of a an award that they might have received for being awesome for a month or something, or, you know, a certification that they achieved because their job requires it or something to that effect, right? And the, the the culture of the Department of Defense and where I've always been, that was valued to have as much paper on the wall to show off in front of your peers, your counterparts, and you would wear it on your sleeve when you would go talk to folks. And even email signatures, which I know Austin, you love having on your email because you know it's one of your things, right? <laughs> like you'll see a mile long of last name, comma, blah, 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 blah. So what, I'm, what am I trying to say? So what I'm trying to say is that all that stuff to keep this PG, it doesn't matter. It just does not matter at all. Um, value is something that is an impact that you gave not only maybe to somebody else, to the team, to the warfighter, as you said, Andrew, earlier, It's it's the it's the creation of something of worth that someone was able to take and use for their own purposes. I, I feel like it's it's somewhat transactional in a way with another person or human. Um, but I think that that's what resonates with me when I hear the word success and value. Um, and then a, a really good friend of mine he always talks about like, this is maybe a little morbid to think of and deep, but like when you die and your epitaph is there and it has like the year you're born and the year you die and that dash line, it's all about the dash. Like what do you want to be known for? At the end of like what you have done on the face of this earth, and what will people remember you for are they going to remember you for like knocking out. Some Defense acquisition university class or is it going to be something different that you enabled a mission to succeed and everybody will always remember that story or you know you help someone. Have a change in perspective on life let's say and they went and achieved something they never thought they could so. That's my answer, um, Andrew. I hope that you can make it sound a little bit more clear than that.
1: <laughs> well, I'm I'm super excited to to follow Steven and his dash movement. Be the dash, or I, I don't know what the catchphrase is there, but be the dash that you want to see in the world kind of thing or something like that. I, I like it. There's something there. difference between success and value for me is I, I have a hard time articulating this because I want to say that when you're adding value, you benefit someone or, or something, right? And and that could be yourself included. Um, success doesn't necessarily require that benefit to happen, right? And, and then there's different ways for measuring that value, um, right? So go help a friend change a tire on a car. Like, does that add value in the world? It, it depends, right? Like maybe that friend was having a rough day and you being there for that 20 minutes was super helpful to them and it adds value in ways that you can't really see Um, versus other people is like no just call AAA or whatever like it's just a flat tire like it's not a big deal so um, and, and I think it's it's also interesting to think about because of the so many different perspectives that exist in the world and and the journeys that we go on that lead us to different things. There's to be super extreme an example. Somebody that grows up in America versus you know pick a third world country, right? Um, like what we value versus what they value is very very different. Um, I, I don't mean to be off topic with this. I'll, ultimately, what I'm getting at is success doesn't necessarily need something to be satisfied. It doesn't need a requirement. Um, or a need for that matter, right? And and I, I do appreciate what Steven said about it's, it doesn't matter. Yeah, so thanks for letting me share my unarticulated
0: thought. I tease this question, and and I've, in my own journey, gotten to an answer to it as well. Um, so when I started to differentiate was actually uh, through a mentorship relationship I had while I was still active duty. Um, my mentor at the time said, there will come a time in your career where you have to make the decision between being somebody and doing something, uh, which I see as the exact, like an exact corollary to this question. Uh, so being somebody is almost goes back to that. Who are you accountable to? Right. I can prioritize all of my boss's requests because he's the one who signs my OPR. He can give me a stratification, et cetera. Uh, whereas doing something means maybe I am potentially putting myself on the line and my career on the line for something that I believe in. Uh, So that's really delivering value. And I think in a lot of cases in the early days at Platform One, we did a lot of things that probably rubbed people the wrong way, people that were stars to work, right? And we had all sorts of difficult conversations, but at the end of the day, like the value speaks for itself, right? We have over 50 mission apps deployed in our production environment. We have thousands of daily active users in some of our collaboration tools. And so like, would I go back and change it for the world? Absolutely not. But from a success, climbing the corporate ladder, et cetera, perspective, it's very feasible that some people's careers somewhat died on that hill because they cared more about doing something than being somebody.
3: I will share what uh, Rob Slaughter once told me that I've always thought about. And I don't know that it always has to be this extreme, but for those people that know Rob, he's kind of that way sometimes. But he told me like halfway through our our platform one time together that the only way to add value in the Air Force is to not work for your boss. Um, And I think that was his way. It's coming full circle from you now, right, hearing you guys share your perspective on this. It it was his way of saying the same thing culturally that we're all talking about right now. I do want to think,
1: like, this helped me think about it a little bit more as you were talking, Drew. And so I had, like, two other things I want to throw on there. So one, Drew and I were talking in the hall about an analogy, and I'm going to hack it a little bit so Drew can correct me, but... Um, it's this analogy of having a monkey cite Shakespeare. Um, And we were talking about something completely unrelated, but um, I think it does apply to this value conversation. And um, quite honestly, it it relates to the whole culture of P1 as well. Um, And so, okay, so the monkey story, Um, you're given a job. The objective is have monkey recite Shakespeare in a year on a stage podium with on a stool or something like that. Um, And so you can go after this as a project management perspective and say cool like I know how to build a stool I can do that pretty quickly and I could build a stage right and I can select a venue. Right, and I could even like pick the Shakespeare that I want this monkey to do, Um, and I could use that to show this progress, but. um, We all know, in the back of our heads like that's actually all the easy parts and. It doesn't add value. I could be successful at those milestones, if you will, um, and ultimately not add any value to the world um, or to this scenario, right? Because obviously a monkey reciting Shakespeare would add a ton of value to the world. Like, I I don't think there's any argument We can all agree to that. Um, So tying that back into the cultural aspect, when you're in an organization like P1 where we're badgeless and there's no real hierarchy or rank or requirements, and we're beholden to the end user and the value provided there. um, We have the opportunity to naturally stand up and say, Holy cow, like this is kind of a bad idea guys. Like maybe we should start with a monkey and worry about the easy stuff later so that we can like validate that value. Um, And then a real practical example is um, platform one, um, is named Platform One because it's a platform, right? Or working towards those platform services and that continuous delivery and whatnot. Um, at no point did we ever discuss hosting collaboration tools like Mattermost. Um, but this thing that we're all familiar with, COVID hit, and all the DoD kind of lost their minds And how do we work? This is all remote, like it's chaos. What do we do here? And so um, a few people uh, spent basically a weekend Standing up this server, which um, I, I'm, I don't, I don't ever recall the exact numbers, but it grew from like hundreds to tens of thousands of users in a very short period of time, and that was 100% because it's something that adds
3: value and solves a need for the end users. Yeah, I, if I remember right, the request came from very senior levels, and within it was just short of 48 hours, so two days, and people were working overnight. Uh, Mattermost was accredited and deployed at il four. So people could do CUI PII type work from home. Wasn't popular because there's obviously a different air force organization that was told to deploy a different chat tool from a very major contractor. And it took them another probably 60 days to get the same capability release. And Andrew's spot on. It went from, I don't know, I think we had a couple hundred and within a week or two, we were in the tens of thousands of daily active users. And it was a, not exactly the workload we intended to do at Platform One by any means, but it was definitely some interesting times. And the adoption, we'll, we'll actually have an episode later from some of our users, one of which is uh, uh, from AMC, the air crews for AMC really heavily adopted uh, Mattermost, which is funny too, right? Because we we used Mattermost before that for like internal chat ops to do software development. And then you realize if you can do that at IL four, hey, guess what? Air crews who are flying mobility all across the globe who never landed Air Force bases guess what? They also need to be able to do secure chat from their personal device. Um, and so when you create value, you really never know where customer adoption is going to happen. And I think that's one of the cool stories of Platform One. And and I wanted to tease like one other thing we're going to talk about through this season of of podcasts is I think there's this natural tension at, uh, over the evolution of Platform One and scaling. We're going to have a, a, an entire discussion on scaling, especially remotely during COVID. And this idea of flat and badgeless and hierarchy versus scaling a process that actually enables teams to work together in the, in the hundreds. Um, And I think for me personally, that's always been one of the most interesting things to watch happen at platform one, just from like a pure organization philosophy perspective. Um, And and Drew Belk is actually going to move from facilitator to speaker uh, or guest on that episode, which I'm really looking forward to because he helped lead a lot of that. Um, So. This brings the, to me to the favorite part of every episode, which is uh, ending this each with your your favorite story from your time at Platform One. Uh, Andrew Green's got to like search back of three maybe three plus years of experiences to pick one story, um, so he's got a he's got a big job at hand. We'll let him think longer, and we'll start with Stephen, uh, who is new new-ish. You've been on the team for a little while now too, so hopefully there's something from your early times that that you can share as well.
2: Yeah, so my. My funny story, if you will, is my very first day, my very first, what we call platform one day one. I was the noob as far as using this tool called Zoom that's out there, not a promoter of Zoom, but I'll just offer that it's the tool of choice of platform one for virtual collaboration. And me being an idiot, you know, he was using my wife's laptop and uh, had no idea how to like rename myself on there. Didn't even know how like to sign up for an account or whatever figured out how to get in and it was like labeled amanda's macbook pro or something like that so my first indoctrination was saying hi because at the beginning of every daily stand-up we ask are there any new faces out there and i'm doing it from a hotel in the middle of san antonio you know jet lagged all that good stuff and uh they're like okay hi amanda's macbook pro how are you doing today and i'm like what are you talking about buddy steven and uh so it was a moment that I had to like own in the, you know, as platform one and I'm like, yeah, I'm this value stream lead. I think that I'm coming in, blah, blah, blah. Party bus, I think, blah, blah, blah. Um, it just goes to show you like being vulnerable and like just putting yourself out there. Uh, yeah, it was fun, but you know, I like overcoming that stuff cause it doesn't matter at the end of the day. Like it was a great moment. know and the rest of the week was cool because we have this whole like onboarding process that's pretty low risk you know you get you get there you get to meet a lot of the other folks that are kind of pleasing folks and uh you know you get to meet you get to meet people virtually and it was new and uh we had a good laugh and i had to learn really quick so that's my fun story and uh, sticking to it yeah
3: (laughs) <laughs> I think I remember telling Stephen when he first his first day in the office like hey congrats party bus is by far the hardest job you have about 200 dev teams, maybe 3000 developers and most of them are pissed off so. Uh, <laughs> uh, <laughs> I, was like, I was like if you just field those complaints so that Andrew Green and others don't have to you'll probably be everybody's hero from day one and I think I think that's basically how it went.
2: Yeah, pretty much. And then you basically said also, like, you can go as deep as you want to with this job or not, but the the angry folks are still going to be there. So <laughs> it's up to you to take them on or not.
1: <laughs> All right. I did have time to think about it. And okay. So um, before we went remote, we were at a facility, a collab facility called Catalyst Campus um, in Colorado Springs. and And this was, you know, much before a lot of people's time um, so, anyways, we're at this this facility, and there was a um, operational specialist. Her name was Brittany Burnworth. Brittany, if you hear this, thank you for allowing me to share this story, and I'm so sorry that you're the subject of this. So, she was operational specialist. Brittany was amazing. Um, she she would support us on all the campus stuff, um, you know, scheduling different things and events and food and just all kinds of stuff. And and very early on, we had. 18,000 tours every other day. Um, I don't know how some people did it. Um, I just got tired watching all the people funnel through the tomb, the, the room. So anyways, um, so so I got to know Brittany pretty well. Um, and then one week, there was a group of us that were traveling to San Francisco because, uh, fun fact, um, Space Camp originally started out targeting to do um, MLAI stuff. And, and we totally pivoted away from that as well. Um, so anyways, we're in San Francisco doing a training for this stuff. And she had messaged me and said, hey, uh, where are you this week? I, I need something. And and I told her, it's like, oh, I'm actually in California this week. Um, and I left it very vague. And I didn't say anything. And she said, oh, what are you doing in California? And, you know, me being my totally serious professional self said, well, I'm actually auditioning for American Idol or America's Got Talent. And she said, oh, no way. Like, what are you doing? And I said, yeah, I mean, I don't really talk to a lot of people about it, but like my hobby is opera singing. And she was so sweet, like super supportive. And she's like, oh, my gosh, that's so amazing. And and I told her, it's like, yeah, I got through the first round. And so I'm getting ready for the next round and I'll, I'll be back next week. Um, so so that was great. But then the story keeps going. <laughs> So, so, you know, I let it die off and <laughs> I come back to work on that Monday and I was thinking about it the whole time. I was like, man, what am I going to do here? Like, am I, is, am I just going to come clean right when I see her? Cause she's, she's in the front room when we walk into the office and um, I was able to pull it off and play out this whole thing. It went on for like a week and she thought I did it. So I walk in on Monday and she was helping somebody else. So I was able to like sneak by and she's, but she saw me, she's like, oh, we, we have to talk. And I said, Yeah, yeah, we'll talk, we'll talk. And and I sneaked by and for two days I was able to avoid her, not like purposely, but you know, we were always like in conversations and whatnot. And then she she started pestering other people that were also gone that week. And at one point I, she says, like, what what did you do? And and how did it go? And and I told her that. And it's like I don't know what you're talking about. I have no idea what you're talking about. And then I blamed it on another coworker. It's like no, I was traveling for work. He's like, oh, he must have got on my computer during lunch when I walked away or something, and told you this story. And so it just went on forever. But um, that that was that was that was super fun, just to to mess with her a little bit. That's got to be my actual like
3: favorite early days story. Uh- you know, we recorded an intro and an outro for for this podcast, and that we really should have had you sing opera for the beginning and ending. It would have really been, it would have really put bookends on this for us. There's still <laughs> time. <laughs> that there is true. Be, There's still time. I, my warm up. I I haven't done my voice exercises today. <laughs> I just. <laughs> um. So I mean, we. This has been awesome. I think uh, I don't want to have favorites for episodes we recorded, but this is my favorite one that uh, you guys have both helped me remember, like, what made P1 so sp- uh, It still is, right? It's special. And it's like, it's it's why it matters so much. And uh, I've told Steven every day, because he's one of the government guys still, still at P1, that like, if the P1 culture dies, it's his fault personally. So I message him from time to time oh, to check I'm in. Sure. so I I put that pressure on his his and a few other people's shoulders but uh I'm super it was really fun to talk about um Drew you have any any closing thoughts
0: nope I think I'm good uh this is my favorite thing to talk about Andrew and I have probably talked about this 600 times so we were well prepared for this podcast if you will and and Steven (laughs) and I even in the past four months that he's been here have had lots of heart to hearts. so it's been great
3: all right. Well, Andrew and Stephen, thanks. Thanks for joining us for the, the culture is king episode. I think uh, hopefully people learned a lot and we get some some comments on this and can collaborate with the rest of the community.